gracia y paz de Dios nuestro Padre y el Señor Jesucristo. Grace and peace be with you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to be with you today because wherever you are, where, however you find yourself, today is Sunday. And every Sunday is a day to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. It is also good to be here because it is Lent. Now, I know that for many of us, this Lenten season feels like an extended edition of Lent 2020. To me, it has felt like I've been living in a strange land where it is always Lent and never Easter. If Lent is a kind of preparatory school for Holy Week, then it seems like we have been going through one long, long semester. At the same time, I believe that this school, Lent, is particularly important this year because this Lent invites us to reframe our current moment. The COVID season in which we find ourselves has highlighted the value of science. The quarantines, the social distancing, the mask wearing, and the testing have been difficult, but they work. I have to give credit to everyone particularly here at Duke, who has been working hard through a long, long season to keep our campus community as safe as possible. And now we find that cases are going down, vaccinations are going up, science matters, and reason is a gift from God. However, our biggest problems will not be solved by science and reason alone. COVID season has also exposed other pandemics that have proved resistance to human science and engineering. Today marks the, fifth, the 56th anniversary of Bloody Sunday at the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the violent repression of people marching asking to be counted. There is no vaccine against the pandemics of racism and its multiple variants. The CDC cannot save us from the ideological polarization that has made mask wearing an identity marker. Pharmaceutical companies cannot deliver us from the so-called COVID diplomacy that has been turning vaccines into carrots and sticks to be wielded over near and distant neighbors. In this COVID season, Lent presents us with a timely invitation. Today's scriptures offer science and reason a booster shot of grace, the wisdom of God, a wisdom that is world-changing, Christ-shaped, and spirit-led. The wisdom of God is indeed world-changing, and yet this sounds odd to our ears 
For one thing, wisdom is not a common word in our daily speech. Perhaps the reason for its relative neglect from our vocabulary is that wisdom is not simply an intellectual category. A bad person can be wicked smart, but a bad person cannot be wise, because wisdom is a moral category. And many of us perhaps stay away from mentioning it because we are uncomfortable with talking about morality in public spaces. The situation, however, was very different for the Christian community in Corinth. In the society that these Christians were accustomed to, the study and practice of wisdom was prized. The congregation coveted super sermons. They expected preachers to be princes of the pulpit, like Peter. Or they expected master rhetoricians, like Apollos. And then there was Paul. Word on the street was that Paul was a weighty writer, but a mediocre preacher. He lacked due gravitas. His speech was described as contemptible, whatever that meant. In the book of Acts, we read that during one of Paul's sermons, a young man fell asleep and plummeted out of a window to his untimely demise. Death by preaching, not the way I would want to go. Even so, Paul refuses to jazz up his preaching. He breaks the rules of rhetoric. He forgoes eloquence. He rejects winsome speech and plausible arguments. What Paul is modeling for the Corinthians is that the world has changed. Here again, this quotation from Isaiah 29, which Paul offers to the church at Corinth. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The old hierarchies are undone. As he tells the Corinthians, just one verse beyond the passage that was read, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. It is no accident that Christian tradition, tradition teaches that the shepherds arrived at the manger before the magi. There is now a new normal for what counts as signs of God's power, a new normal for who counts as bearer of God's wisdom. This new normal is not simply version 2.0 of the old. It is something more radical. Scholars call it an apocalyptic event, an epistemic revolution. But Paul writes more simply. He calls it the wisdom of God. Throughout church history, this wisdom has been best embodied by those who were not included in the dialogues of Plato or the ethics of Aristotle. Sor Juan Inés de la Cruz, the 17th century Mexican theologian, spoke for many whose voices had not been heard when she said, if Aristotle had cooked, he would have written much more. She may have been inspired in that vision by mystics like Teresa of Avila, 
who spoke of God's wisdom as a savory kind of knowledge. This knowledge often tastes and smells like baby food for the academically pedigreed, but it is manna to those who have been cast as extras in world history. The point here is not that Christians do not care about science and universities. God gave us the first as a gift, and Christians developed the second as a missional institution. The point is that a research university cannot go at it alone. The wisdom for navigating the many challenges facing our communities and our planet will not be found apart from zip codes that have been redlined and written off. In the words of Ignacio Yacuria, the university should become incarnate among the poor. Lent, then, calls for reconsidering our address because the wisdom of God is world-changing. And moreover, this wisdom is Christ-shaped. In the Gospel lesson, we meet with a Jesus who shocks our Sunday school sensibilities. If you looked up at the bulletin image on the website, you would find an, a representation of the scandal before us. The Jesus who's presented is not a meek and mild person, but a powerful prophet wielding a whip, Zoro-like, and clearing the temple of all people and animals. Now, Christians have debated throughout the centuries whether Jesus actually struck anyone with that whip, and the text is unclear on this point. What is clear is that by placing this story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John wants us to understand that Christ's entire life is shaped by the cross. The zeal for his father's house will ultimately lead to his brutal murder. It is for this reason, I believe, that Paul tells the Christians at Corinth that he only wants to preach Christ crucified. Why does Paul not reference the teachings of Jesus and reduce everything to Christ being crucified? Well, because at the cross, we encounter the core of Jesus' gospel. Thomas Aquinas says it well. Christ hung on the cross the way a teacher sits on his chair. It is easy to forget the scandal of this proclamation, of this word. In the first century, the cross was not a religious symbol. Far from it, it was a Roman method of execution reserved for crimes against the state. It served as a powerful political symbol. Crucifixion was how the empire got rid of rebels while having a little fun at their expense. You want to be king? Here's your throne. You want people looking up to you? We can arrange that for you. The famous Pax Romana was built on the terror of the cross. In this context, then, the word of the cross sounds like sheer nonsense. 
Christ crucified. Of course, this had to be a scandal and foolishness. How could it be seen otherwise? This is one strange sign. For the Jews, the cross was a reminder that they were a conquered, colonized people. Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. He lost. If he could not save himself, how could he save others? The cross was also foolishness to the Gentiles. Greeks and Roman philosophers had long abandoned the myths of Zeus and Jupiter, but even those stories seemed better than the Christian alternatives. I mean, what kind of weak, second-rate God lets himself be hung, bruised, and naked for all the world to see? Foolishness. Reflecting on this foolishness and this scandal, Martin Luther drew a sharp contrast between two kinds of theologians, the theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. The theologian of glory looks for God in those things that seem splendid according to human wisdom, brilliant books, powerful oratory, subtle arguments, this way of doing theology leads to boasting before God, blindness to suffering, and hardness to heart. And this person, says Luther, does not deserve to be called a theologian, but an enemy of the cross of Christ. By contrast, the theologian of the cross looks for God not in the places of power and privilege, but in the places of weakness and forsakenness, where God is present, but hidden under contrary forms, a manger, a table with sinners, riding on a donkey, hanging on a cross. The true theologian is not first and foremost a friend of wisdom, but a friend of the cross. For Luther, Christianity is not a philosophy, but an encounter with the crucified and his friends. Even as Christ is stretched on the cross, he stretches all our categories. If something that is hard to conceive for us, because something greater than Jonah is here, He's not just a prophet. If all that Jesus did were written down, there would not be enough books to contain it in the world. Something greater than Solomon is here because in Christ, all the secrets of wisdom are hid. Something greater than the temple is here because in Christ, the Holy Spirit rests and remains. In brief, for Luther, the cross becomes the test for everything. And Lent invites us to measure ourselves, our work, our institutions by the measure of the cross. Now, what does this mean? It means remembering that we and all we build is dust. It means listening again and again to the call of repentance and renewal. It means asking myself, 
Have I become a debater of this age? Have I become one more scribe? Am I a friend of the cross? How does my institution measure up against the cross? How do its projects and endeavors mine the open wounds of the crucified and the bleeding bodies of his friends? Are they at least aligned along the same axis? If we remain silent while Herod speaks, then we are no friends of the cross. If we have no answer to the cry of the poor, we are no friends of the cross. If we know only plenty in a world of want, safety in a world of insecurity, health in a world of suffering, we are no friends of the cross. But, but, if we bring the crucified down from the cross and work for a world without crosses, then we are friends of the cross. If we order our steps by mercy as we tend to the wounded among us, then we are friends of the cross. Because Lenten wisdom is world-changing when it is Christ-shaped and when it is Spirit-led. The Holy Spirit is not featured in the passages that were read today, but if we look carefully and closely to the surrounding texts, we will see that the wisdom of God is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Read back in the Gospel of John to the previous chapter and you will encounter John the Baptist declaring that Jesus is the one on whom the Spirit descended and remained. It is this abiding of the Spirit that makes Jesus the temple incarnate. Read forward in 1 Corinthians a few verses and you will hear Paul say that his speech and proclamation was not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The wisdom of God is not something that we can grasp. It is something that grabs us and leads us into the deep things of God as only the Holy Spirit can do. In his book, Let Us Dream, The Path to a Better Future, Pope Francis names a principle that he believes to be fundamental to our current moment. He says, quote, that ideas are debated, but reality is discerned. mold that words a bit longer because I think that they say something very important for us. Pope Francis is not downplaying the importance of ideas. Instead, he's suggesting that ideas only get us so far. The problems we face in our world will not be solved by good ideas and debates alone. What the church most desperately needs is not more debaters or apologists. Those have their place. But what it most desperately needs are people who are grounded in truth and open to discerning and being led into deeper truth. In brief, the church needs young people with Christ-shaped visions and old people who still dream world-changing dreams because the future is ultimately hopeful.
When I graduated from Duke Divinity School many years ago, I was appointed by my bishop, uh, Marion Edwards, to begin a United Methodist ministry among Hispanics living in Durham. After some fits and starts in that work, a small group of families began meeting for weekly Bible studies in their homes. And as Holy Week 1998 drew near, one of those families suggested that we should have a worship service, uh, not just a Bible study, for Good Friday, and offered their place for that service. When I arrived to their place, which is a duplex uh, in an unpaved street, uh, I saw on the front porch of the house all these balloons and streamers decorating the place. There was also a table with uh, aluminum uh, dishes, those aluminum dishes with, uh, that are heated with sterno and kept warm and with rice and mole and tortillas. And there was also by the side, uh, tres leches cake and also piñatas. And so about 30 people packed into a small living room for a tenebrae service followed by fiesta. Nothing, and I mean nothing, that I learned in worship class prepared me for this. This was Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter all rolled into one with a birthday thrown in for good measure. But this was not a denial of the scandal of the cross. It was instead the deeper wisdom that recognizes that the cross is the tree of life. It is that special sensitivity to the light of Easter that only those whose lives have been marked by crosses could understand. It is the tested discernment that at its core, reality is good, life is beautiful, and the gospel is true. It is the dream of a people who long for a better future, a future without walls and without crosses, and this is spirit-led wisdom. As I recall that Good Friday service, I also think of the Divinity School today. I believe that God has entrusted those of us who work at this institution with a great responsibility. In our official statements, we say that we offer a spiritually disciplined and academically rigorous education, and that our purpose is forming innovative Christian leaders for the church and the world, and this is true. But today, I want to express this goal in different words and for a wider audience. We, as Christians, in our contexts and institutions, in our homes, are called to raise dreamers gospel dreamers who dream of a better future, discern the call of the church, and act with the wisdom of God for that future, a wisdom that is world-changing, Christ-shaped, and spirit-led. Amen.